Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts on today's show on extreme weather events, storms, and floods. So let's jump in. Severe storms include thunderstorms, heavy rains, strong winds, hurricanes and cyclones, and storm surge. Catastrophic flooding can be caused by any severe storm or by a tsunami, which is an ocean wave produced by an earthquake, also by landslide or volcanic eruption. Tsunamis can even travel across entire oceans and cause severe flooding when they make landfall. These are a concern because severe storms and floods can cause drowning, injuries, and contamination. And if polluted floodwaters linger after a storm, there's a possibility of infection from wading in the floodwaters or from using the water for drinking and cooking. Flooding may also leave pools of water favorable to mosquitoes that transmit disease. Storms can also greatly upset our natural ecosystem, significantly disrupting coastal native shellfish, other fish, insects, birds, and mammal habitats. Pollutants from flooded industrial sites have caused hazardous chemicals to enter untreated into project sites, into groundwater, into watersheds, and the oceans. Endangered species are especially vulnerable when habitat is destroyed, and water quality is impacted when sewage treatment facilities flood or when debris enters reservoirs and waterways. Beaches also move and change shape due to storm surges, and riverbanks erode during flash flood events. In many cases, evacuations may be necessary before a severe storm, and a storm can damage homes and buildings, forcing people to seek shelter during and after the storm. Also, there's considerable loss of healthcare infrastructure that can be associated with flood disasters, including evacuation of entire hospitals and then emergency department presentations may also increase markedly. It's intuitive that public health preparedness is an essential element in preventing morbidity and mortality associated with flood disasters. And here to help us unpack all of this, our first guest is Sharon Beard. Sharon is with the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institute of Health. She is an industrial hygienist in the Worker Education and Training Program 
at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, and she's located in the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. As an industrial hygienist, Sharon is primarily responsible for coordinating, evaluating, and improving the nationwide worker education and training program in areas of hazardous waste, emergency response, and nuclear weapons slash radiation reaching communities all over the U.S. She has also worked in environmental restoration and industrial hygiene and safety departments at Westinghouse at their Savannah River Company in South Carolina. And she's a member of the NIEHS Science Advisory Committee, the Health and Human Services Environmental Justice Working Group, and the Brownfields Federal Partnership. She's also a member of the American Public Health Association. Sharon also holds a Master of Science in Environmental Science and Management from Tufts University, and she holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Biology from Western Carolina University. Welcome, Sharon, and thank you so much for being with us. We're so glad you were able to join us today. Thank you, Bernice. I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit about the work that we do here at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Well, thank you. We've been directed to you because of your work in worker trainer and education as it relates to disaster responses. We know that you have seen a lot and must then have a lot of experiences as it relates to the natural disasters that are caused by flooding and storms. And so we know that your work puts you in involvement with most of our country's most severe and extreme weather events. So let me ask you, Sharon, start us off by letting us know or talking to us a little bit about what environmental impacts or pollutants are of greatest concern and who is at greatest risk. Well, if we're talking specifically about hurricanes and storms, uh, we really want to look at the communities who are going to be greatly impacted on those coastal areas, or where the flooding actually occurs. Uh, one of the most important things is to prepare in advance to make sure that you are aware of when a uh, disaster might strike and strike. And what we've been able to do uh, with uh, the hurricane warning systems and the flooding systems is to work with communities to prepare them so they will have plans in place on how to respond to make sure that they know what to do if they need to evacuate. And if not, they really need to look at making sure that uh, that during a flood or a hurricane that they actually protect themselves uh, and their communities by making sure that they are, are out of the, the, the flood waters and also the wind and the storms that come up uh, as a result of that storm. And I think particularly after a storm and during the recovery, that's one of the really most dangerous times for individuals when they come back into the homes is to, to make sure that they uh, understand the hazards that are associated with entering homes and entering into communities that have been impacted by floods. And there's a lot of hazards associated with the floodwaters, the hurricanes, and, and those type of things. It, it seems as though people tend to minimize that, particularly when they've been on alert a few times and the event has not turned out to be as bad as they thought. I think they tend to let their guard down. Yes, they do. I mean, it's just so important to recognize the hazards of floodwaters. Uh, and and if, you, if you don't understand that there are so many different hazards as far as because we don't know what's in those floodwaters. You could have contamination from sewer systems. You can have pests, rodents. You can have snakes. 
You can have uh, just debris in the water and you're stepping on that and, and things like that. So it's important that you, you understand those particular hazards and that you have training to alert you of what you might encounter when you go into those environments. And, of course, one of the biggest things that we're seeing a lot now is that people going back into homes and that have been flooded and we see a large uh, amount of uh, mold and spores and microtoxins that can impact people's health if they, uh, they inhale those spores. Now, Sharon, too, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences worker training program that you run as it relates to the emergency response aspect? And, and why was your program started? Obviously, it's a very good thing, but what was the impetus to develop this? Well, uh, NIEHS Worker Training Program was established in 1987 to focus on improving worker safety and health programs as far as individuals who are engaged in hazardous materials, hazardous waste, and emergency response. And so it was mostly about Superfund sites. But what we've really found out from the work that we're doing is that these programs do so much more. We support businesses and municipalities for providing training that meets the requirements to reduce workplace injuries, illnesses, uh, and uh, make communities safer. And uh, really, ever since we started our hazmat disaster preparedness program, we've been responding to numerous uh, disasters uh, and working, uh, integrating with the federal emergency response efforts to uh, focus on different hurricanes and response, everything from Hurricane Florence, Harvey, Irma, and Maria. We've responded to the World Trade Center, the Gulf oil spill, uh, Hurricane Sandy. So we've been engaged in a lot of programs, and our whole focus is in making sure that we improve worker safety and health across the country by providing individuals with appropriate training, either pre- or post a disaster. Okay, Sharon, one last question and then we got a race to break. Any sense or numbers that you all have in terms of the types of disasters that you've been responding to over the last few years? When I say types, it, is it weather events like flooding, hurricanes, or nuclear, or what? Well, I mean, usually what we do is that if there's a major incident or or, or occurrence that that happens, we get activated to go in to respond. And so, uh, for example, with Hurricane Katrina, we trained over 21,000 workers and community members to respond for that. Under Hurricane Sandy, we trained over 6,000 workers. And even with the Gulf oil spill and the individuals who are helping to clean up after it, we trained over 130,000 individuals to be trained to make sure that they know the correct way to clean up after oil spill. We're going to have to go to break now, but we will come back and talk a lot more about these responses. Thank you. We'll be back after the break with Sharon Beard with the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. I want to do a shout out to our sponsors. That is EarthX, which convenes the world's largest environmental expo, conference, and film festival, promoting environmental awareness and impact through conscious business, nonpartisan collaboration, and community-driven sustainable solutions. The upcoming conference is April 22nd through 26th in Dallas at Fair Park. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Thank you, sponsors.
Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're talking about extreme weather events, storms and floods, and we're here with Sharon Beard with the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Thank you, Sharon. We were just talking about the some of the incidents of the various emergency disasters that you all train workers for in your program. Now, I understand that your program goes beyond actually the response to the various disasters, but you also get involved with economic development or helping to resuscitate those communities with this same work. You want to tell us just a little bit about that? Sure. We have another program that we call the Environmental Career Worker Training Program. We started that back in 1994 where we're working with communities to train individuals who live and work in communities impacted by environmental contaminants and hazardous waste sites so that they can be a part of the revitalization and the cleanup of those communities. And since uh, we've been doing this, we've uh, developed a partnership with a grant, our grantees uh, through a cooperative agreement where we uh, recruit individuals and provide them with health and safety training, life skills, mentoring, uh, and that, that critical component of job readiness and training and environmental and construction work. And uh, we advance worker opportunities by creating a more skilled labor force and provide, providing for those careers. And it's so important to be able to do that. And since the time of starting this program, we've trained over 12,000 individuals in over 40 different communities across the United States to do work uh, helping clean up their communities. And a lot of those individuals have also been responsible for going out and helping doing the response efforts. Uh, one of our consortiums, the Historical Black Colleges and Universities Consortium out of Texas Southern University and the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice helped provide training to workers in the Gulf after the Gulf oil spill. So, Sharon, and this is good because that means we have many more people on the ground who are able to get to the communities and the folks that are affected by these storms and flood events in a more immediate manner. So let me ask you, though, what are some of the most severe events that you've seen in the last few years on the ground in terms of weather events? Well, I think one of the major ones, of course, was Hurricane Harvey. It is such a different response because the hurricane came in, but the the rain occurrence and the amount of, of, of rain, which we can consider these superstorms now, they just linger. And so it stayed over the Houston and that area for days and days and it inundated the community with so much water and so much flooding that uh, it hampered response activities and it flooded thousands of homes and businesses to the point where freeways were completely covered and you couldn't even get access to people to help rescue them. And so I think that's the nature of of these storms because they're becoming more super storms. And just like with Sandy, uh, also, we have these type of impacts that last for days and uh, cause major problems with communities in reference to the local emergency response uh, individuals being able to get in to help. And so it takes much longer for these communities to recover. Are you all finding or do you think or do you have research that indicates that super storms are our future? We're just not sure how how to really even characterize that because they they are they occur in 
in different times of the year now. We don't just have them on a regular basis during the hurricane season. As you can tell now, we have storms where we have tornadoes uh, that impact communities, and we have uh, uh, different types of winter storms that come all the time. And, you know, at NIEHS, we don't focus so much more as far as research on the storms. We focus on the impact of communities in reference to the environmental health and those impacts. And so we study those uh, efforts uh, more here at NIEHS. Okay. So what are the on-the-ground immediate health and safety risks for people and for workers in the floods and storms? When workers are going back in and they're trying to work with communities to make sure that they're safe and make sure that they're okay, some of the biggest things that we find as as problematics is that a lot of individuals enter homes that have not been really cleared, so they have structural damage or integrity issues. And so they go into homes and uh, they start trying to remove materials and things, and there's a collapse. So that's one of the biggest things that we happen more than anything. You have to make sure that it's been determined that the, the a home is safe to enter or the business is safe to enter. People forget about when you go into flood-prone areas and homes, you know, electrical uh, issues if the powers are not cut off and, and you're going in and doing things and uh, you have all the other contaminants that are in water and things. But I think one of the biggest things that people talk about most is, of course, mold, mold contamination and how to deal with that. And one of the trainings that we focus on doing is working with communities, homeowners, and individuals so that they will have uh, kind of health and safety essentials for workers, volunteers, and homeowners when they go into uh, homes. So some of the, the immediate impacts to health and safety are going to be things that are in the water, electrical issues, contaminants, and insects, and things like that, as well as the structural integrity of the building, which I think people don't tend to think about that in floods. They may think of structural integrity when there's an earthquake or something else that's tornadoes, but they probably just don't tend to think about it with floods. I think that's probably is going to be a really big issue. It certainly is, Bernice, and and it happens over and over and over again. An other aspect of that, too, is that we, we tend to forget about those inherent hazards of just being out in that in you know weather and the climate. If you're talking about you know 95 degree temperature, heat, humidity, the heat impacts, the sun, just being out of the element, not have access to a portable water to wash your hands. Then what happens is that you have diseases, you have outbreaks, and those type of things because we don't have access to the normal things that we would have in a community after a storm or a flood. Also coming to mind is the integrity of the area's water system. Talked about earlier that a lot of the flooding perhaps could compromise the sewage system. There could be debris in the water source. Do you do training in in this area? Do you train your workers or people who are out in the community to test or to perhaps alert or warn the citizens there, about the safety of their water? Well, one of the things that we've done over the years through our regular hazardous waste worker training program is we work with municipalities and train individuals who work with wastewater, uh, sewer, and, and systems. For example, uh, the 
the Service Employees International Union out of New York works with a lot of the municipalities, and they trained a lot of the folks who respond to Hurricane Sandy. And so they were involved in and going out and determining if the water systems were secure, if there was any type of contamination to let people know that the water was safe to drink, and if it wasn't, what would you need to do? And so we developed these training programs in collaboration with our partners to make sure that they train individuals whose job is to, to work in those facilities, but then also after a storm or an event where we might have damage to the structures or those facilities, they understand how to appropriately to assess it and then make sure that they develop communication tools to be able to uh, to alert the public of what the issues are. And so many of it is about the sewer overflow, the uh, and those type of things that happen in, after a storm. Now, I understand you all have developed a number of toolkits for hurricane and flood response, as well as a number of guides. Now, are those just for the folks that you all train or for the municipality? Or are those some things that can be of some benefit to just uh, everyday, ordinary people? We have a lot of different toolkits that we developed for our program, and we have pocket-sized booklets that include information on mold cleanup, hurricane, and flood, Uh, but we have site-specific training that we developed through our grantees to address a lot of these particular types of training program, and it's available on our National Clearinghouse for Worker Health and Safety training here at NIEHS. Okay, Sharon, we need to wrap up, but I want to put to you the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solution to uh, flooding and storms, and really it's the response or the hazards that they create? What's your opinion? I think one of the biggest things is to make sure you understand the area where you live at, the hazards that are that can happen on, on, on a regular basis to be prepared and understand the impact that might happen to you and your family to be prepared and then also heed the warnings when people tell you to evacuate or leave because the safest thing for you to do when a storm occurs is to leave and evacuate in a timely manner so that you will be safe and you can be able to come back and help restore your home and your community and that's one of the things we focus on is that we want to make sure everybody is safe. Thank you so much, Sharon. We really appreciate it. You've given us some very valuable information. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back on the next segment of our program with Dr. Patrick Harris, who's going to help us unpack this subject much more in terms of the significant health impacts. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back with the second part of our segment today on extreme weather events, storms, and flooding. The recent floods in Texas and other parts of the southern United States after Hurricane Harvey have garnered international attention. At the same time, floods in India, Nepal, 
and Bangladesh have killed more than a thousand persons and significantly affected tens of millions. Floods are the most common natural disaster occurring worldwide. In 2016, floods, excluding landslides, affected a little more than 74 million persons globally and resulted in almost 5,000 deaths and had an economic cost of more than $57 billion. Of 161 significant flood disasters worldwide in 2016, 43% occurred in Asia, 23% in the Americas, and 12% in Europe. Floodwaters pose immediate dangers to human health, but also long-term effects resulting from displacement, worsened living conditions, with the risk of infection after exposure to floodwaters, capturing considerable public attention and is a common cause of presentation for health care after floods. The impact of flood disasters is expected to grow significantly in the future owing to the effects of climate change and population shifts. For example, in China, the number of elderly persons living in rainstorm hazard areas has increased by 38 million between 1990 and 2010, greatly increasing the complexity of planning for future disasters. And that's in China. Similar effects are expected in other places. Now, here to help us explore much more of the health impacts of storms and flood events is Patrick Harris. Patrick Harris is an infectious disease physician. He is a medical microbiologist and an early career research fellow at the University of Queensland Center for Clinical Research in Australia. Following his postgraduate training in the UK, he worked as a clinical lecturer at the College of Medicine in Malawi and completed specialist training in infectious diseases and microbiology in Australia. For his final year of training, he was a senior visiting fellow in infectious disease at the National University Hospital in Singapore. He has published more than 50 peer-reviewed articles, And his research has a focus on antibiotic-resistant bacteria and the use of randomized clinical trials to define optimal treatment for these problematic infections, as well as the application of bacterial genomics to clinical practice. So Dr. Harris is very much an expert in these things that are really important and that we want to unpack. So welcome, Dr. Harris. We're so glad you could be with us. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Now, you work in a clinical lab looking at and dealing with infectious diseases, and you've said that in your, your lab has become somewhat of a sentinel of what's happening in the population. So tell us a little bit more uh, about that, about the things that you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. So I work in Brisbane, which is many people know is um, part of Queensland, which is the sort of north uh, eastern part of Australia, we have quite a huge geographical area that spans right up into tropic, tropical and subtropical regions. And we have pretty extreme weather. Not only do we have the bushfires, which I'm sure many of you are aware of, but we quite frequently have hurricanes, uh, well, we call them cyclones down here in the southern hemisphere, but they're essentially the same thing. We have these extreme weather events, very severe storms, 
huge uh, rainfall, which causes extensive flooding. And probably my interest was peaked in this following cyclone Yassi, which was a few years ago now, but uh, we had very extensive flooding here in Brisbane City. So the Brisbane River broke its banks and I guess similar to what happened with you in Texas, uh, there was extensive flooding throughout the city and, and surrounding areas. Kind of like our and Hurricane we, Harvey. Yeah, that's right. A similar sort of problem. And um, it was, you know, we haven't seen this for many, many years, but uh, these sort of flooding events are unfortunately becoming more more severe and more extreme and more frequent. And we see, you know, in our laboratory, we're a diagnostic laboratory, so we see um, patients or samples from patients that have clinical infections and we frequently see after we've had these severe flooding events or severe weather events, uh, a real tick up in these unusual infections. So these are either bacteria that you wouldn't normally expect to be causing, say, skin and soft tissue infections or severe septicemia or pneumonia. And, you know, very frequently after we've had these events, these unusual organisms start to pop up. And often they may be very virulent and cause severe disease. They may be more resistant to standard antibiotics. And clinicians may not be particularly aware of them, and certainly not patients. Um, you know, these are often fairly obscure, opportunistic pathogens that you wouldn't necessarily learn about at medical school um, or not in the public consciousness very much. Um, and if you miss them, they can be devastating. So people can die from these infections, um, or they can cause you know, quite extensive morbidity or suffering or prolonged infections that take a while to clear up. So I think yeah, you're saying with, with each of these extreme weather events, you're, you're seeing different types of unusual infections and diseases. Yeah, it's interesting. There seems to be, it, it, there's no particular rhyme or reason to it. Certainly the more severe the event, the more extensive the burden of disease and I guess the greater variety of disease we see. It's also quite geographical. So we have a laboratory network that goes right across the state and it's a fairly huge state. Up in the northern region, there are particular infections. So uh, one that I'm particularly interested in is one called meliodosis. Mm -hmm. It's not something you see in the U.S. very often, um, but it's quite common in Southeast Asia and tropical Australia. And it's very closely linked to weather events. So we hardly see it at all during the dry season. It's an organism that lives in the soil. It lives in your garden, uh, amongst plant matter and decaying vegetation normally not doing very much. But when the rains come, it seems to become aerosolized or people are out exposed to muddy water or walking around barefoot in the garden and multiple ways it can get into your body. And what does it and cause? What are the manifestations of it? Uh, well, it's, it's a devastating disease. So it seems to particularly pick off patients who have some sort of medical problems like uh, liver disease, uh, diabetes, um, they're on steroids or something like that, but even free, totally healthy people. And they can have everything from, you know, quite commonly that with, with severe pneumonia. So, you know, in ending up in intensive care on a respirator, septic shock, which is essentially when your organ systems start to sort of fall to pieces and your kidneys and lungs and so on start to uh, um, stop working. Um, but it also can have more insidious presentations with brain abscesses or abscesses in your liver or spleen, um, unusual skin in manifestations, bone and joint. Probably the most devastating presentation is in the brain. So it tends to affect the brainstem and can actually uh, can kill you quite quickly. So and I've you're saying, patients. though, you, you really only see this disease after the, the weather, the flooding events? It's 
very strongly linked. So, you know, we, we, we might see the odd sporadic case throughout the year in the dry season, but as soon as the rains come, almost inevitably within about two weeks, you'll start to see these cases roll in. And this is a very well-known phenomenon across tropical Australia. Um, it's hugely common in Thailand, Vietnam. Um, but you're saying we haven't seen it yet in the United States. Yet. Well, it, it, it was seen after the Vietnam War. So a lot of um, uh, veterans from the Vietnam War came back with this disease, and it can sit in your body for decades. So it's, it was sometimes called the Vietnamese time bomb um, because it can lurk in your, in your body, doing not very much until you become unwell, and it can recrudesce many years after your exposure. So there have been cases in the U.S., from mainly from Vietnam veterans or people who've travelled overseas, but it's very rare. So you have to have the right kind of uh, environment for these organisms to survive. Okay, we're going to need to go to break shortly. But after we come back from the break, I want to talk more about some of the other things that we are seeing with the flooding events. We'll be right sure. back with Dr. Patrick Harris. We want to give a shout-out to our sponsors, that is EarthX which convenes the world's largest environmental expo, conference, and film festival, promoting environmental awareness. It includes environmental business leaders and speakers, exhibitors, films, and eco-virtual reality experiences. EarthX 2020 will be held April 22nd through 26th in Dallas at Fair Park. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and the North Texas communities. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back with Dr. Patrick Harris from Queensland in Australia, and he is an infectious disease specialist. So, Dr. Harris, in a lot of the research you've done, which is excellent, by the way, and this is what has directed us to you, but in your research, you've explored and discussed the health risk of floods stratified by the time that these risks appear or occur after the flood event. Can you tell us uh, about these risks and how or why they occur when they do? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, clearly the most pressing risk when the event happens in the sort of, you know, immediate aftermath or during the event itself is, I guess, more the direct effects of uh, the flood or the storm or whatever it may be. And that can include drowning or severe injury. Um, you know, clearly people are trying to get out of their homes or trying to rescue things or, or get to safe ground and very frequently get caught in floodwaters or they uh, often there's debris floating at high velocity, which can cause a lot of injury. People are often not necessarily particularly well. I know in Queensland, it's very common to see people wading around in bare feet in, the, in these floodwaters and falling into ditches or treading on, you know, sharp objects and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of just simple trauma uh, and, and, and harm that patients, uh, that people get into at that point. There's also sort of more subtle things, like often there's a lot of electrical hazards. There may be power lines down and very common for people to unfortunately get electrocuted in that sort of situation. And then there are odd things like there's a huge spike in things like uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. So often people are, you know, their power's out and they're relying on 
maybe a little camp stove in the in a back cupboard somewhere to sort of cook their food while they're waiting for the power to come back on. And a lot of people die from these sort of other unexpected complications that you don't necessarily think of. And then I guess we start to see infectious complications usually, you know, a week to 10 days after these events, the sort of acute infections, particularly skin and soft tissue infections. What do you mean when you say, or give us some examples of soft tissue infections? Yeah, so the classic thing would be somebody wading around in the water with without much foot protection, they get a cut. Now, you know, your average cut in, on your skin would not necessarily be a huge big deal. But very often, if it's contaminated with flood water, there's a whole range of different organisms that can get introduced into that wound. And those organisms can be particularly tricky to treat. Um, they may be as I said earlier, not particularly familiar to, to your general doctors out there. Um, the kind of antibiotics you might use, uh, your sort of empirical guesswork antibiotics may not work against these type of organisms. They're often organisms that survive in the environment, in, in water or in mud or, in, or sometimes even in seawater. We call them opportunistic pathogens. So they find a, an opportunity to, a, to infect you in this unusual disruption of the environment and your and if you have a, a, a way that those bugs can get into your body through either inhalation a near drowning event uh, a cut on your skin a wound or something like that they can take that opportunity essentially they look upon you as like a new food source and they go oh this is fantastic i've got somewhere else that i can uh, survive and thrive in and as a, a side effect of that will cause potentially quite severe infections. I imagine that they don't necessarily present immediately either. No, that's right. That's right. And so there are different organisms, some which are very fulminant and they present quickly within a few days or hours even of, of infection. But some can be really indolent and present weeks to months down the track. So these are slow-growing organisms like mycobacteria, uh, they're like cousins of things like tuberculosis, so they don't cause classic TB, but they can cause these chronic ulcers or uh, not, you know, nothing that's probably going to kill you necessarily, but they can be very devastating in terms of tissue damage and pain and discomfort and disfiguration. And again, very hard to diagnose if you don't necessarily know what sort of inoculation uh, event has happened, especially if it happens months down the track, you may have forgotten about that time you were involved in the flood, and also quite hard to diagnose in the lab. So we have to do special testing to try and uh, find these organisms. And unless you t the doctors tell us what to look for, we don't always necessarily know that's, that's on the card. So, um, And we haven't even gotten to the drinking water yet. Yeah, well, that's right. So obviously, I'm in, I'm obsessed about sort of infections of bacteria, but there's a whole range of other things that you need to worry about. From you know contaminated water, you see sp huge spikes in gastroenteritis. Essentially, it sounds disgusting, but essentially, the sewage system very commonly will overflow and contaminate the floodwaters. Plus, you know, all your usual uh, water systems tend to sort of uh, break down during these these terrible events, particularly on a more major scale. So your drinking water may not be particularly uh, particularly safe, and you often, and I guess often pay, people are put into say evacuation centres in very close contact with other people. So it's very easy for infectious diseases like norovirus or rotavirus to sort of spread through those collections of people very quickly. As you can imagine, it can be quite unpleasant when they do. Are you seeing any types of organisms, pathogens, or even diseases that can be 
or are introduced into society or a population as a result of a flood event that stay there or linger for years? That's a very good question. Um, I think that's less that's less common. Usually, what what you're seeing is a, a disease that's present locally. You know, these organisms are in the environment, but we very rarely have any contact with them. So you, the clinical disease is usually fairly rarely presented that way. Um, and what happens is you just get this huge disruption in the local environment, you know, this ecological kind of, uh, you know, everything gets shaken up and patients, uh, humans are kind of in the mixture and they get infected and, and, and then they present. You do occasionally see things, I mean, after, um, I mean, things like cholera can be introduced. Cholera, inter- in, interestingly, can live in little tiny crustaceans in, uh, on, within, in the sea. And if you get huge contamination of seawater, you know, after, say, a tsunami or something like that, um, that can actually introduce cholera from, I guess, an environmental source into a into a place where there may not have been, been any cholera uh, pre-existing. And I have to think and that then, some of that happens, like during Harvey, I think, and maybe during the really devastating hurricane or cyclone that you all had there, where you had yeah. some infringement of the seawater into the local water source or into the local areas. That's right. And that, that can be a huge problem because seawater carries its whole, whole range of other things that are necessarily unexpected, unexpected. We also know that uh, these health risks increase for those with pre-existing conditions. And so how are they dangerous for folks with immune compromises and other conditions? What do you commonly see there? Yeah, no, that's a very good point as well. So I guess one thing, probably in a way, some of the most pressing issues are the sort of often the breakdown in general basic uh, routine medical care. So if you think about all those patients who are needing, say, kidney dialysis or, you know, have chronic medical conditions that need regular follow-up or, uh, you know, people running out of prescription medications, people not getting their Ventolin puffers. Uh, so not only do these events kind of tend to stir up whatever disease you have, so it's very common, for instance, for people with diabetes, for their sugar control to go completely out of, out of whack, um, and they may be short on insulin or may find it difficult to monitor their sugars or their dietary intake. So all those quite well-managed systems that we have in place to keep you on the straight and narrow when you've got a chronic disease or a complex medical condition uh, you know, when the health systems begin to break down, particularly if you're in an environment where the health systems are not very robust, um, that can be a huge problem. And we know we get huge spikes in cardiovascular death or death related to diabetes or respiratory complications. And think about patients who are needing things like cancer chemotherapy or, uh, you know, more complex interventions like that. You know, that's very, very hard to maintain or manage complications when you're in a, a sort of a disaster situation. Yeah, when your hospital uh, infrastructure is, is breaking down. And quickly, uh, uh, as we begin to wrap up, too, there are also some immediate health risks from floods, such as impacts on mental health. Can you talk to us just a little bit about that before we wrap up? Yeah, so again, it's very well recognized that there's almost like a post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome that is... Um, well described after these major events, uh, particularly obviously those that are um, most sort of immediately affected by the more dramatic aspects of it. But I think also just the stress and the the, the extra complexity that these things place on a person or their families or their their communities creates an awful lot of, 
you know, additional uh, mental distress. And we know that prescriptions for, say, antidepressants tend to shoot up um, quite dramatically after these, it, it may, maybe up to a year or more after these events have occurred. Okay. Well, Dr. Harris, we want to thank you so much for being with us. I have one last thing that I must ask you and ask you to respond briefly. And that is, in your opinion, what can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions to the issue of floods and, and the health impacts that it causes? I'll try and make it quick, but I guess there's a philosophical point, which is, you know, obviously we need to try and address the fundamental causes of this, and that does unfortunately include climate change and all the complexities that go with that. But I think also we need to be more prepared for these events occurring, particularly in the more vulnerable areas where they have more, you know, where we're uh, maybe low-lying flooded areas or places where you have more extreme weather events. These are going to become more frequent, more extreme and more devastating. And I guess we have to all as individuals be prepared, just plan ahead as best, you, as best you can. And I guess part of our work is trying to make clinicians aware of some of the more uh, unusual complications. That you right. Thank you so much. And I would add to that, not only plan ahead for the physical aspects of it, but plan ahead for the health impacts of it as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. We're so glad you could join us. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, in your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Thank you for listening.